www.kcpe.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line, especially those first-time listeners here at 88.7 FM or through the internet at wagp.net. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling with, a challenge that you're trying to look for biblical application to, whatever the need. If we can help by God's grace, we will, as uh, Walter and Rick just opened the program Uh, There are several ways that you can contact us. Again, you can email us directly here into the studio at wagp.net. You can call us directly at the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that's 525-1859. If you call, you can dictate your question, or you can go on the air live, and we give preference to live callers. Well, with that said, a lot of questions have come in. We had a slight technical glitch last week. So we're going to repeat a couple questions from different states so that they get an answer that they're looking for, but we'll try to hit them quickly. Go ahead. Let's get started, Walter. Good to have you here at the board today. All right. Glad to be here, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from a listener in California. They ask, what are Dr. Brogy's thoughts on kombucha? A friend gave me some, and it felt similar to alcohol. I've been sober for years now, and I was convicted with how it made me feel. My husband is still making progress to become sober, and I do not know if we should keep this in the house or if this may help him completely quit. Alcoholism runs in our blood, and has been he has been make, making great strides with Jesus' help to quit and become sober-minded. I was asked, I asked one of our senior pastors, um, and this was his response. We have had kombucha before, and we do not believe that there is anything wrong with drinking a small amount of alcohol unless it goes against your convictions i.e. such as vanilla and NyQuil, since they have alcohol in them also. There are examples of drinking small amounts of alcohol in the Bible, yet it clearly speaks out against drunkenness, have, unless you have liberty in Christ. However, do not ever do anything against your biblical convictions based on Scripture or cause anyone else to stumble, as it says in Romans 14. I agree and also disagree. I drank a small bit hours ago, and it is still changing how I physically and mentally feel. Is this where this may be a conviction for me and our family versus others that may be able to freely partake? Thank you. Well, let me just begin by saying that to compare this to taking NyQuil, let's say someone is sick. Certainly there are winos who get cough syrups and they drink the whole bottle to get a high because they're desperate and they do things like that. But, you know, that's like comparing giving morphine uh, to a person who's sick and dying as an act of mercy, which, of course, the Scripture speaks that you can do that with strong drink in Proverbs 31 to a dying, despairing man, versus uh, getting a high from it, giving it to a junkie. So that's mixing two totally different issues to start. 
Uh, let me just say, when you think about wine in the Bible, there are two principal words. There's actually six words in Hebrew, but two principal words that you will find in reference to wine, oinos in the New Testament and oinos throughout the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the Jewish people used for a long time, several hundred years, because they lost their ability to speak Hebrew, uses the word oinos. Uh, the principal word for wine in the Old Testament is yayin. Now, there's one of two extremes. Some would say, well, all the wine in the Bible was unfermented. That's not even smart. Uh, do not get drunk on wine. Others would say, well, all the wine in the Bible was fermented. That's not smart either, because the Scripture is very clear. There are cases in the Scripture where wine yayin or wine oinos refers to simply the blood of the grapes, like in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, God speaks of uh, wine that's in the press, and he uses the word wine. When it's in the press, that's when they're stomping on the grapes, and obviously it's grape juice. Uh, We distinguish in our day between fermented versus uh, new wine, and by the way, the term new wine, when the adjective is put in front of it, always refers to to unfermented wine, the, the, the grape as it is squeezed. So we distinguish grape juice versus fermented wine. The Bible doesn't make that distinction, so context must determine what is in view. So the Scripture can speak of the place of the red wine, where it's trod. Again, it's wine, um, and obviously not fermented. So as you read through a number of passages, that becomes clear. With that said... Uh, when you speak of this, um, it's a tea, I'm told, among other things. And there's different forms of kombucha. There's homemade kombucha that typically has somewhere between 1% and 3% alcohol. There's commercial kombucha, which is about a half percent alcohol, so they can sell it as non-alcoholic. But what I find interesting is you said it made me feel. And so you already felt a little bit of a buzz from it. And so, of course, the the wine today is very different from the wine in biblical times. The wine in biblical times, most of the yeast that was used was just caught in the air. You know, some of you want to make sourdough bread, and you have a process where you leave it out in the air, and it picks up natural yeast in the air. That's how most wine was made in the early centuries. And, of course, um, with that said, the alcohol rate was much smaller. Um, Today, wine can go anywhere from... Five and a half percent to twenty three percent. It's much stronger, and of course, the distilled liquors weren't even invented when the Bible was written. They come nearly a thousand years after the Bible is completed. So, when we speak of vodka and uh, rum and whiskey and things like that, those did not even exist in biblical times. Now, typically, and if you go to my website, I have a couple of articles. One written by Robert Stein in Christianity Today. It appeared in actually 1973, a long time ago, uh, back then when actually Christianity Today was a Christian magazine. Today it's gone pretty liberal, and they have a wide range of writers. Uh, in addition, there is an article on my website at searchthescriptures.org uh, by Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the great theologians of the 20 and early 21st century, just went home to be with the Lord the last several years, and 
He wrote a fantastic article in Bibliotheca Sacra, which is actually the oldest theological journal in the United States, and he entitled it Wine Drinking in the New Testament, very similar to the article with Chris, from Christianity Today, but just with a little bit more Greek and Hebrew, so it might be challenging. But nonetheless, what is clear is it is wrong to get drunk, number one, and two, it is wrong to use strong drink. And so in biblical times, there would be seasons of the year because they did not have the preservative process where they would mix wine and water together. It was typically in a five-to-one ratio. How do we know that? Well, not only literature outside of Scripture. And so, by the way, in literature outside of the Scripture, if you uh, mixed or drank straight fermented wine, the Greeks called it a barbaric move. Uh, They viewed it as a form of barbarism. They didn't care a lot of them, but still that's how they described it. In the Didache, which is a... Uh, second century A.D., most people would date it around 125 A.D. It's an early church pastoral manual that gave young pastors instructions on, you know, how to function as a pastor. And one of the things that they clearly delineated is that during those times of year when there was not new wine, that is grape juice, as we might call it, so that you did not violate the scripture and use strong drink at the Lord's table, they mix it in a five to one ratio. Mishnah gives very similar advice. Mishnah being uh, Jewish oral commentary on the Old Testament. So when we're speaking of strong drink, it was naturally fermented, undiluted wine or beer. And God forbade it with the exception in Proverbs 31 of uh, giving it to a dying and despairing man. Add to that, of course, God gives some other clear instruction. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is confronted, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it, you love your neighbor as yourself. And so a buzzed mind is not in obedience to the greatest of all commandments. And so when you are breaking that commandment, uh, you're breaking the greatest of all the commandments. And of course, Romans thirteen fourteen says, make no provision for the flesh, for the sin nature, in regards to its lust. Our goal is not to see how close we can get to sin, but how far away we can get from sin. And so to me, uh, the pastoral advice that you got, I'm not sure if it was from this, well, she said we, uh, meaning her and her husband, who's a pastor, I think the advice is very uh, aberrant and not wise at all. Number one, uh, your uh, your pastor and his wife are in a leadership position, and they want to model God's ideal, and their leaders in the church should model God's ideal. Do you want some uh, babysitter to come over to your pastor's house and care for their little children, and they look in the refrigerator, and there's a bottle of wine? They think, well, he's a godly man. Uh, he drinks wine. It must be okay for me to drink wine. And then you set a terrible example uh, for the youth. We don't even allow people who work with our children. They fill out an application form. Of course, they have to be members, but more than members, they have to have some issues that are straight in their life to serve with children and youth. And if they drink or smoke or watch you know, compromising material on the Internet or on television— then we ask them not to serve, for God to grow them in those areas of their spiritual life. And so certainly, in Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul addresses not causing a brother to stumble. 
and I think we want to make this a gray area. Well, we have a freedom to drink wine as long as we're not causing someone to stumble. Well, certainly we don't want to cause someone to stumble. And when you're using alcohol, you're either, A, setting a terrible example for people who've come out of backgrounds where they've struggled with alcohol. And so, no, it would be stupid to say, uh, look, I'll give my husband a little bit of this uh, low alcohol content um, tea of sorts to wean him off. No, you don't wean him off. He has to go cold. And that's that needs to be his perspective. When I went to the Ukraine in my first trips in the 19, late 1990s, and I've been there, I don't know, 35 times or more, um, they had pure alcohol, uh, wine, fermented wine at the Lord's Supper. And I told him, I said, look, think about it. You've got 30% of the population who struggles with alcohol. It's 70% in Russia. And you want to give these new converts a taste for that which they need to repent of? No, you don't want to give them even a taste of it. Uh, and there's other alternatives that are available to you. And so Paul certainly says that, um, I'm reading here from Romans chapter 14, and he says, we're to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. He's talking about clean and unclean meats, but a willingness to, to adapt your behavior amongst someone who grew up under the dietary laws of the Old Testament, which were part of the ceremonial law that God lifted such that you can eat any kind, but you adopt, adapt your behavior so that you don't give offense, unnecessary offense. And then he says it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine, do anything by which your brother stumbles. And then he'll say in verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So the fact that you're positing this question and you've got doubts in your mind should be all the reason in the world that you need, even without understanding the biblical argument. When in doubt, cut it out. Don't do it. Some things, too, have the appearance of evil. They may not be evil, but they have the appearance of evil. And the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, to abstain from every appearance of evil. Why would I want someone to think that I give an endorsement to the alcohol industry by drinking even a low volume alcohol? But again, it's affecting your mind. And we should do everything to live a separate life, a holy life. And honestly, I don't know of any pastors who speak with any authority who consistently lead people to the kingdom of God. Uh, who use wine. I don't know of any. Now, certainly there is the power of God's word, and sometimes God works in spite of people. You know, Jim Baker, uh, who was a televangelist, along with Jimmy Swaggart, both who had morally compromised lives, preached God's word, and folks were truly converted under their ministry. Not because of them, but in spite of them, because the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. But I just don't know of any pastor who speaks with any authority, any power, and consistently leads people to Christ who uses alcohol. So it's not as gray an area as we'd like to make it. The gray issues, so to speak, are enough to give me reason to refrain, causing a brother to stumble, having an appearance of evil. Does it really glorify God in this day where alcohol is used to seduce people. Woe to you who gives your neighbor to drink to, cu- to see their nakedness, to make them drunk so as to see their nakedness. It's one of the key 
usages of alcohol today. People go out and they party. Why? So they can have illegitimate relationships. And they know that people will lower their standards when they get high and buzzed. The Christian in our day should be different. But it's not as gray as we think because it is strong drink, the wine and beer, much less the distilled alcohols. It's considered strong drink and forbidden by Scripture unless you're giving it as an act of mercy to a dying, despairing man. I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next question is actually from Robin. She is a live caller um, out of Seabrook, South Carolina. Good morning, Robin. You are live with Dr. Brogy. Thank you, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I hope I can make this clear. Um, this morning, Greg Laurie was talking about um, that in the body of Christ, we should have unity and diversity with diversity. And it's making me think about um, friends and family members that we have um, that we get into. I mean, I don't bring these things up, but I have friends that bring up Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation music that they use in their churches, um, teachers like Beth Moore and Sarah Young, and then the movies, The Shack, The Passion, The Chosen series, and how, you know, it's like when those things come up, because I'm not bringing them up, I wouldn't, but when they come up, I feel like I have to um, take a stand, you know, that those are not for us. And many times the person that I'm talking to, especially one of my sisters, gets offended. And, you know, I feel like we have, I know we have to contend for the faith, but how do we do that without offending others? Oh, it's a great, great question. Thank you for asking it, Robin. You know, we often quote Augustine as, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity or love. And that is true. You know, there are some things that are not a test of fellowship in terms of uh, making a person a Christian. So I obviously hold to post-conversion baptism. I think that's the clear, plain reading of Scripture. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ who have the gospel, who preach the essentials, the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the physical bodily resurrection, the physical return, the infallibility of Scripture, the virgin conception, etc., uh, but they practice infant baptism. Can I fellowship with them? Of course I can. And so, um, but somebody's right and someone's wrong. With that said, uh, I think sometimes because we live in a day where the Word of God is not really taught, people lack discernment. Where does discernment come from? Well, when the writer to the Hebrews speaks of discernment, and this is an overarching principle, and I think it's important we understand it. That's why I'm taking a moment to comment on it. If we don't understand the overarching principles of how discernment is given, then we will not be able to exercise it. And so, of course, he is writing, writing to the Hebrews, and he says in Hebrews 5, "...for though by this time you ought to be teachers." In other words, enough time has transpired where you ought to be able to train other people, answer basic questions. He's not saying that you should serve in the office of teaching or that you necessarily should have the gift of teaching. The gifts of the Spirit are determined by the Holy Spirit. They're given as He wills four different times in Scripture. That truth is affirmed. 
So I can't determine if I get the gift of teaching or the gift of evangelism or or helps or whatever it might be. And certainly in reference to the office of teaching, which God has called me to, God warns, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you incur a stricter judgment. But in terms of the ability to teach, that's a mark of maturity. And so, for instance, an elder in the church may not be a professional preacher. And so Paul speaks of those who are elders who work hard at preaching and teaching that they are worthy of double honor, indicating that not all elders will formally stand in a pulpit, so to speak, and preach the Word of God. But an elder must be apt to teach. In the parallel text, it says he must be sound in doctrine. And that's really what's in view here. For everyone, so by this time, you ought to be teachers, mature enough where you can answer basic questions, but you have need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have not come to need, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So a major, major, major problem in the church is people are being fed with a baby bottle every Sunday from the pulpit. There's no substance to what they're hearing. It's just milk. Now, if it's milk and it's God's Word, it's good, but some of them aren't even getting milk. They're just getting the thoughts of man rather than needing an open Bible to hear a sermon. And if the pastor doesn't progress his people past milk, then they have a congregation of babies And babies, you know, become, give me what I want. They cry, they whine, they are potentially divisive. And so when you're dealing, okay, let's take the issue of Hillsong Bethel. Um, If they were discerning, and again, you have to have solid food and more than just being taught it, you obey it, you practice it. And in the process you've trained, and the word trained there is gumnasto, we get our word gymnasium from it. You have the ability through practice to discern good and evil. And so some of your family members can't discern good and evil because they are probably on a milk diet at best. And so they, again, there's a, there's a discerning rod, there's a plumb line and the plumb line is scripture. And so if you have errant groups, you say are Hillsong and Bethel errant? Of course. You start reading and delving into their theology. At first, Bethel went way to the left, and Hillsong wasn't that far, but the fact that Hillsong would not separate from Bethel shows that they are really errant too. And now, of course, we've seen all these pastors in both organizations and music leaders who have been guilty of sexual immorality and infidelity And as a result, you know, these are the people who've been leading their churches. Not to mention there's grossly errant doctrine in Bethel. And I'm talking about essentials. Again, I quoted Augustine in Essentials Unity. We're talking about essential truth. Uh, You can Google Bethel baptismal service. And they did one recently. It was on the internet. It made its circles amongst a lot of Christians and to hear these people give their testimonies, it's like, man, why don't you lead the person to Christ before you baptize them? But the mouth speaks that which fills their heart. These people weren't even believers by the words of their own mouth, and yet people were clapping and baptizing 
these unbelievers. That's not to say that a Christian pastor couldn't baptize an unbeliever. I know I have, but not knowingly. A person can have all the right words and still not necessarily have embraced it in their heart, and that's where time tells. So their theology is not critical on the essentials, not to mention they're egalitarian, which may be no big deal to your relatives. By egalitarianism, they affirm that men and women are equal, as the Scripture teaches, but they don't affirm complementarianism, that men and women are equal, but we have different roles in the body of Christ. And so they deny male headship in the family and in the church. That's wrong. God has created a head in the home. Uh, he's created men to lead the church. That's not to say women can't teach and preach to other women or to children, but a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And they rationalize those texts and they come up with Deborah or this person or that person, and they're, they're just taking verses way out of context. And so when you support by using that music, and this is one of the concerns I have for the re- so-called revival God will be the ultimate judge that's taking place in Asbury, or or I guess they orchestrated today that it was over and the kids have to go back to classes, which is probably painful for some of them. They were enjoying being out of class. But, you know, they're using all this Bethel and Hillsong music. Like, where is their discernment? Don't they know that every time they sing one of their songs, every church is supposed to have a CCLI license. Now, there are some hymns that have been around for so long, you don't need a license for them. But there's a lot of new music that is being done that is superior in theology. Uh, The Bible says, sing a new song to the Lord. So it's not spiritual just to sing 16th, 17th, and 18th century hymns. It's okay to sing a new song. But every time you sing that, you're giving money to that artist. And so we, based on our church size, we pay a license fee, and our pastor of worship has to record how many times he sang this song or that song, and it goes back to the organization that therefore disseminates the funds to Bethel and Hillsong. Why would someone want to underwrite an organization that is grossly errant in their theology? That just lacks discernment. And I would say the same with some of the books you mentioned. They obviously don't have a theological grounding. So to try to, um, you know, address them, you have to address them in gentleness. And it's always best rather than just to say what people say about it, to go to original sources. And most of that is online. If you just typed in the theology of Bethel and there's organizations that you know, directly quote their pastors, their written sources, and say, okay, this is what they say on this subject. Do you think this is true? Well, clearly not. Okay, well, if this is what they say on this, or I don't know, oh, you don't know? Well, let's compare Scripture with what they say. And they may not know. And, of course, if they're unregenerate, then they don't have eyes to see and to embrace, and their bigger need is the gospel. And don't assume anything and the day that we live in, uh, because very often people are Christianized in America, but they haven't been born again. So you start there, and with gentleness, you try to lead them along. And they might say, you know, you're right. Uh, They're really grossly in error here. And if our church sings their songs, what are we doing? Well, we're helping to financially underwrite them, but what else are we doing? We've set a terrible example. Someone says, oh, that song was great. 
Is that to say that they couldn't produce a good song? They can. They can produce a good song. But does that mean that I then want some young Christian to say, I really like that song. What else does Bethel have? What else does Hillsong have? And I guess I'll end up following them. And, of course, with the online resources, you now open that undiscerning new believer up to a whole realm of theology that may be grossly wrong. And again, the Bible says separate from those who teach the wrong thing. We don't want to teach about biblical separation anymore, but God's word does. And and there's a place to actually, and again, I'm not talking about secondary and tertiary issues. I'm talking about like the core values of the Christian faith. And so biblical separation is taught in 1 Timothy 6 and Titus 3, 2 Thessalonians 3 and Romans 16. Um, and so these are critical things. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. What teaching? Well, just start with Romans that he's writing them for. Does Hillsong and Bethel depart from essential truths in the book of Romans? Yes, they do. And if someone doesn't understand that, it's it's just an expression of their ignorance. They, they either are ignorant as to what they teach or they're blind and that maybe they haven't been born again and they don't see why those issues are essential. Or here in 1 Timothy 6, I turn there, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, it does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing. Okay, well, that's that's pretty straightforward. Um, and think about some of the things that he says in 1 Timothy alone or in his letter to his second letter to Timothy or in Titus 3 for instance in Titus 3 10 and 11 I've just flipped over to there reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-determined self-condemned think about the factious people in the body of Christ that have been with Hillsong and Bethel who have committed sexual immorality and now they're already restored when they should be disqualified from serving as a pastor. Oh, I didn't know that was going on. Well, yeah, it's it's going on big time. Or 2 Thessalonians 3. I'm turning over there. Give me just a second. 2 Thessalonians 3 in verse uh, 13. Um, again, he makes a, 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 a very straightforward statement about those that we should separate from. So anyway, I've spent enough time on it. I hope that helps. We've got a live caller that's waiting, two live callers. So let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, our next live caller is Alberto out of Savannah, Georgia. Alberto, good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, my question is, you know, all this stuff going on about this wokeness that they say that, that they blame everybody else for their failures, they blame everybody else for not, you know, getting they're not where they at, they should be in life. So how does apply that in the spiritual in the spiritual realm? Should the person blame the preacher or the church or the person who is not at where he should be in, in, in his spiritual growth and the lower and knowing the truth of the true gospel? Or should that person be taking accountability from his own self for searching himself, knowing the true gospel? and knowing the true teachings of the Scripture. So should he blame the pastor, or is the person should be accountable for his own fault for not knowing the truth? 
Well, um, I suppose it's a combination. You know, the scripture says in 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. And of course, it's not from faith, but from the faith. It's articular, meaning the body of truth delivered once and for all, as Jude underscores, what we call today the Bible. In latter times, not simply in the last days, but in latter times, that's a phrase that points to the end of the age before the return of the Messiah, that men will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So that's the day that we live in, and we live in a country where we have a Bible that people can read, and if they can read social media, then they can read the Bible, and they need to be reading Holy Scripture because uh, we live in a day where false doctrine is rampant, i.e. the last caller. Realize this, that in the last days, now the last days is a different phrase in that it began with Christ's time on the earth. Uh, We know that from the writer to the Hebrews. He says in different portions, in different ways, God spoke. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son. So obviously we've been in the last days since Christ has been here. Even on Pentecost, Peter stands up and he remarks, this is what God said would happen in the last days. Though I do think we're in the latter times or what we might say the last of the last days. Why? Because in the same chapter, he goes on to say that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived, that as we move towards the end of the age, it will go from bad to worse. And that's the day that we're living in. And in describing this time frame, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. That kind of goes back to the principle of separation that we were just speaking to. I didn't read that verse in Second Thessalonians. Maybe I should have. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he'll be put to shame. And again, he's dealing with leaders in the church, not with your family member per se, but those who are leading the body of Christ, which is why it's essential when he comes to the next chapter in 2 Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Because, for, it's causal in Greek, you could render it because, because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. So if a person is born again, then they have the ultimate teacher reigning in their heart, God's spirit. And that's why First John teaches through a teacher that you have no need of a teacher because you have the anointing referring to the Spirit of God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't raise up gifted teachers in the church. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. But he is saying that your ultimate teacher is God's Spirit. So if a person's born again, they'll have even the newest Christian a certain level 
of discernment where they'll say, I don't understand it, but it doesn't seem right, and they'll probably ask some other Christian whom they think is sound. But remember, what he is talking here is the time will come when people won't endure sound doctrine. And he's speaking here of an entire uh, congregation. They, not he, but they will accumulate for themselves. Um, They will turn aside. So it's a plural verb there. He's speaking of entire congregations finding preachers to tell them basically what they want to hear because they don't want to hear truth. So on the one hand, pastors are accountable to teach and preach the Word of God. And if their congregation is suffering from malnutrition because they're not showing their love for Christ by feeding the saints— they're going to give a great account. Remember, let not many of you become teachers knowing that they will encounter a stricter judgment. On the other hand, the believer has the Holy Spirit living in them. They can sense when something's wrong. And if they're under a pastor who is teaching bad doctrine, false doctrine, or compromising the truth in order to make people feel good, look, some pastors, what they're preaching is truth, but it's what they're not preaching that should bother you. They won't address moral issues. They won't address transgenderism. They won't address homosexuality. They won't address adultery. They won't address fornication. They won't address drunkenness. They won't address eternal retributions. It's the things they don't say. And look, they will incur a stricter judgment. And so those people should find the best church they can. And in this day and age, God knowing that There is coming a time when men would depart from the truth, and it would be harder to find a good, solid Bible teacher. We have people who drive 50 miles to come to church every week because they have a slice of time in which to raise their children, and they're just tired of wokeness and all this other compromise, and they just come. It's the Lord's Day all day. That's just what they do. And, And God knew at the end of time, too, we'd have the Internet, And so I tell folks all the time, get the best church you can and get some vitamin supplements off of sound teachers on the Internet and and do your best. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. We have another live caller. Good morning, caller. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead. Pastor Brogy. Yes, sir. Hello, I'm a Christian. I was born and raised a Roman Catholic, and... um, through uh, the ministry, I became a born-again believer. Um, can you tell me, are Catholics uh, considered Christians now that I am a born-again believer following Christ? Because as I was raised, my church never believed and, and they were taught about salvation, about baptism, about born, being a born-again believer. Can you help me understand it? How are yeah. yeah, how long have you been a Christian? How long have you been a, been a believer? Can I ask that? Uh, t- 35 years, sir. Okay. All right. So let me just say this. Um, there are obviously, you know, hard to put an exact number, somewhere around 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in the world. Does that mean they're all lost? No. Does it mean the Catholic Church has the gospel? They do not have the gospel. They preach another Christ. Listen, there are some core essentials. And what Satan often does, remember, he presents himself not as, I'm the devil and I'm here to deceive you. 
No, when he comes, he often tries to persuade people and lead them astray. Paul says, I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness that your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So God gives such warnings over Satan's evil. And Paul will say that when Satan comes, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This is 2 Corinthians 11. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That's popery. That's the Roman Catholic Church. People who disguise themselves like the evil one, as servants of righteousness, but they do not have the gospel. Let me be clear. When Martin Luther, and we may have some differences on Martin Luther and some aspects of his theology, but one of the things he had was the plan of salvation, that based on Scripture alone, through Christ alone, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas we have on the stained glass window behind me that I preach every Sunday, and on the front of my pulpit, I have sola scriptura. So when Luther goes to Rome, something he had desired to do his whole life, he makes the trip from Germany to Rome, he expected to find all these godly men, and what did he find? He saw moral compromise in the leadership, adultery, gross abuse of funds and everything else, and then, of course, The indulgences kicked in where when St. Peter's Cathedral caved, uh, they needed to raise money to rebuild the dome of that massive structure. And so they sold uh, full indulgences um, where you could bypass purgatory for a sum of money and be guaranteed a place in hell. So this caused Luther for the first time. He's a professor at Wittenberg University in Germany. So he begins to search the scriptures for himself. And as he reads the book of Romans, he's converted. And he realizes that it's not faith plus works. It's faith alone in Christ that produces good works. That good works are the byproduct of conversion, but not the means to conversion. The Roman Catholic Church, in response to Luther's 95 assertions or theses, not a thesis, but a thesis, someone wrote recently, and I gently corrected him because um, he was a good man. I said, it doesn't say 95 uh, thesis. It's 95 theses or assertions. And so 95 assertions that he makes, and most of them concern purgatory, but they're interesting to read. He said, here's 95 places where the Roman Catholic Church is different from what the Bible actually teaches. And it, of course, brought about in a large way, the Protestant Reformation. Luther was protesting what Rome was teaching. His goal was to try to reform it. Of course, he's excommunicated. And so the whole protest movement, Protestant movement begins. And of course, their response to his 95 assertions was the Council of Trent that met over a couple of decades at different times. And they wrote all these canons. And one of the canons is, is that anyone who teaches that justification is by grace alone, that good works do not in some way contribute to that justification, let him be anathema. And it's the Greek word that means damned to hell. 
So they denied that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And that's the whole purpose of the sacramental system. They say that through the sacraments, you are given grace that allows you to do works, that helps earn you salvation. So they don't deny that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. They just say that in and of itself, that is not sufficient to save. That's directly in contradiction to the Word of God. The Word of God is clear that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I delivered to you as a first importance, what? That Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, and twice over, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the Scriptures, the gospel is the death, burial, and the resurrection, and that's the power of God to save. So, for instance, the Roman Church, Baltimore Catechism, what is baptism? Baptism is the sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul. I memorized that as a child, as a Roman Catholic. And yes, I wasn't a passive Catholic. I was an active Catholic. I was an altar boy for like eight or nine years. I went to Mass every week, observed all the holy days of obligation, went through CCD uh, from catechism, from uh, kindergarten all the way through my senior year in high school. And so... What I was learning, though, was contradictory to what the Scriptures were teaching. And so the Roman Church at Vatican I, and then again at Vatican II, and then again in 2010 at the College of Cardinals, reaffirmed the Council of Trent. Look, that's a denial of grace alone through faith alone. And let's not forget, too, that there was over one million evangelicals who were slaughtered by the Roman Catholic Church for preaching the gospel. Over 80 popes, one after another, directly opposed the preaching of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And let's not forget that Pope Francis has um, pushed the ecumenical movement. It really didn't begin with him. It began with Pope Paul VI, was continued through Pope John, through um, a number of different popes, including Benedict, and most aggressively, through Francis. Just in October, uh, excuse me, in November, he met in Pakistan with uh, leaders from across the world of the 35 major world religions. Over 2,500 participants came, and they all signed a document. You can read the document online. It's, it's interesting. Jesus, of course, his name never appears, but what does appear is that you are not to proselytize your religion as absolute truth and unique. And Francis signed that. He did not confess Christ before men. He denied, in essence, what Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The man who is over all of the communications for the Roman Church, who was appointed in May of 2022, uh, has affirmed the homosexual lifestyle. And then as recently as last month, Francis came out again. And by the way, look, Protestants are doing this. They're doing the same thing. But this is a departure from historical Christianity. This is wickedness at its best. So are there Roman Catholics who are born again? Yes, they write me sometimes. I've been listening to you, Pastor Carl, and WBCI in Maine, and I became born again. I was listening to you in Rhode Island, and I became a Christian. Or, you know, and, of course, I write them back and say, well, Look, one of the things that you'll want to consider is finding a different church where you are taught the Word of God. And 
and I'll often say this to people who are in a Protestant church, and I'll say, look, uh, oh, I've been going here my whole life, and, you know, my parents went here, and my grandparents went here, and it's just hard for me to leave. No, you need to sit under a teacher who is opening the Bible and teaching truth. That's essential. And I, I said to a lady recently, she said, well, I've gone to that church my whole life, and that's where my parents go. And, and she was about 35, and I said, look, if you could go there for 35 years, you come here for one Sunday, and you hear the gospel, and you're born again, and this is new to you, and you could go there for 35 years and never hear the plan of salvation, there's something wrong with the church you are attending. They're not preaching Christ and him crucified. And the Roman church is not preaching Christ and him crucified. What's the center point of Roman Catholicism? The Eucharist. It's the Mass. They call it, quote, by definition, the unbloodied sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is being crucified in every Mass. And at one point when the priest holds up the Eucharist and he says, this is my body, they teach transubstantiation that the elements are literally turned into the body and blood of Christ. And they say it's a miracle that it retains the same taste and flavor, but it's literally become the body and blood of Christ. This is just heresy. This is bad doctrine. And you might want to listen to my series on revelations, but specifically 17 and 18. You know, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, there are people who named the current pope as the Antichrist. I think they had some aberrant doctrine in terms of the tribulation and other things because they're coming out of Catholicism. But still, they believe that the pope was in such grave error that he was the Antichrist. Well, he may have represented the spirit of Antichrist that John speaks of, but he was not the Antichrist, and obviously history has proven that. But even the Westminster Confession of Faith states the Pope to be the Antichrist. Uh, I suggested he might be the false prophet, uh, one of the popes, not the current one, but a pope that could come along. But I do think that they will be the locale because the Scripture speaks of religious Babylon that's built on a city of seven hills or mountains, and that's Rome. And I do think that that will probably be the geographical location for the one-world religion. The one-world religion will not be Roman Catholicism. It will be a mixture of all the religions of the world. And that's what the last three or four popes have aggressively been promoting, is world unity and all the religions of the world coming together. Uh, That's wrong. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thank God for those Roman Catholics who have been born again, who have found Christ as Lord, some through this station. But just like a Protestant who's in a bad church, they need to leave because they're not to forsake their assembly together. And the rationale that I will hear on occasion, especially from Protestants, is, well, I want to stay in order to win these people to Christ. Look, that may be an admirable goal. In fact, it's a command to win people to Jesus But you don't do so by compromising other commands of Scripture. Yeah, but my family's been here for 100 years, and my parents are buried out and back, and my grandparents are buried out and back. Look, if they could get up and leave, they would. They can't, you can, you should, because Scripture commands you're not to forsake the assembling together with other born-again believers. And so that becomes important. So are Catholics born again on paper? Absolutely not. It's a denial of critical doctrines that you must believe. 
do they teach everything they teach is heretical? No. That's, again, how the devil works. They mix truth with error, truth with error. Enough truth to make them look like an angel of light, like a minister of righteousness, but you can mix enough error with it to be damned. So don't focus on secondary issues in Catholicism. You can be wrong in a lot of things and still go to heaven. You can think the real presence takes place there in the Eucharist. You could think that Mary is a perpetual virgin. You could think a lot of wrong things, but you cannot be wrong on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, based on Scripture alone, through Christ alone, because that is a clear biblical doctrine one must be embraced if they're going to enter the kingdom of God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next question comes from Abby in Beaufort, South Carolina. She writes, I have an adult family member who is a sibling who is willfully living in sin and claims to be a believer. Should I as a believer associate with this person? Is it different when it's a family member who is living in sin? What about family get-togethers, etc.? If this person is invited, should I bring my family, i.e. my young children, around them? Well, again, you know, you should obviously care for your flesh and blood. You should be very cautious, Abby, if uh, this so-called confessed believer is living a compromised lifestyle, because obviously, and you're in tune with this, no doubt, just from the nature of the question and the statement that you have made, that your job as a parent is to guard those children to protect them. Uh, And so as you do that, you want to make sure that they're not unduly influenced by this family member, because this family member will probably love your kids, and your kids will love this family member who gives them attention. But as they grow older, the attention that they may receive may be very detrimental in contrary to Scripture and contrary to what you are teaching them. So if this is a person who's living, uh, especially as a Christian, claiming to be a Christian and living a compromised lifestyle, I would not want my children with him or her in some kind of unsupervised capacity. They, I would have to be there with them. And if they took issue with that, I would just speak the truth in love and say, look, Joe, you say you're born again, but on the same hand, you deny the faith by the lifestyle that you're living. And so I can't risk that. And God's commanded me to protect my children, that they're to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. And I'm assuming, too, that if he is a professing Christian, that his church has exercised church discipline, and therefore he's no longer a member. And so if he's no longer a member following the steps of Matthew 16, you treat him as a tax collector. And Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, which means that we should have a relationship with the lost people of this world. But again, we're not to be bound to them. It needs to be uh, done in a respectful, God-honoring way. Well, I hope that helps. We're out of time. Where the hour went, I don't know. But I hope the questions today were helpful to those listeners. If you have a question, you can email us at tblthebibleline at wagp.net. And uh, when your question is answered, we email you so that you can listen uh, to the answer if you're not able to listen live. God bless you as you walk with Christ. Friday night, Oysteros, a pig picking, chicken licking Oysteros at Community Bible Church. Go online for details. God bless you.